this beautiful, sweet promise that is laid before us here. Now, I just want to quickly go through verses 1 through 7, kind of give you a, a big picture of, of, of the flow of, of Isaiah's message here. It begins in verse 1. And, and what Isaiah is, is communicating there is a message of certainty. He speaks with what's referred to as the prophetic perfect, using past tense, but, well, yeah. And it's with a certainty of what's already coming. Uh, it's, it's quite, that in and of itself is quite extraordinary. Certainty and a great reversal, a great reversal of fortune. Something extraordinary is coming on the horizon. Just in case you're wondering why are these tribes mentioned in the ge geographic geography, what's the significance of that? Because that was the region, the northeast area of Israel that absorbed the brunt that was the first to get smacked by these invasions as they would come. And God in his grace, where does Jesus settle? Where is the, the most intense place of his ministry take place? In that very area, centuries later. That's what's being alluded to here in Isaiah chapter 9 and what Roger was reading from a little while ago in Matthew 4. So that's verse 1, the certainty of this reversal. The response, verses 2 and 3, the overwhelming joy that can't be contained. The language is just bursting at the seams. How can this be? That's verses 4 and 7. A, a, a dramatic a reversal, something defying all odds is going to take place. God is going to show forth his strength and his might and his power much as he did years before in the battle of Midian through Gideon. Let's read about that in the book of Judges. War. All vestiges of it. All manifestations of conflict and carnage and all of its it, war and all of its works and all of its tools and all of its trade is going to be swept away. Isaiah tells us. How? Because of this king. This matchless mighty king that is going to come on the stage just right on the world stage taking up all the space if you are a king like David from David's line that David and his line was meant to prepare the way for and paint and point towards great David's greater son Jesus Jesus is who's being spoken of here Christmas is about the coming of the king. Which is cause for celebration. Cause for overwhelming joy. I mean, my, my goodness, you go and read the Gospels. What do you see? Zechariah, once he, he regained his speech. Zechariah and Elizabeth, overwhelming joy. Mary, Joseph, once Joseph was kind of brought on to speed, up to speed what was going on. The shepherds. The Magi, I mean, everywhere you turn, Simeon and Anni, everyone who understands, not Herod, but everyone who understands what's going on is filled with a response over overwhelming, overwhelming joy because Christmas is about the arrival, the coming of a king. And when you understand who this king is and why he has come, that is abundant cause to celebrate. Which takes me to the outline. Because you especially see that as you break it down. The kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, and the character of the king. The nature of the kingdom and the character of the king show us, oh my goodness, this abundant reason we have to celebrate with the coming of Christmas. So first, the kingdom. What makes 
this joy so overwhelming and so certain? Well, the kingdom of this king, his kingdom, what it consists of, what it's like. Verse 7, let's look at it again. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Four features I want to look at here just for the next few minutes. First off, this is a kingdom of righteousness. So, uh, think of terms of what we see, what the people saw in their day, what we see still in our own day, that will be done away with. No more corruption. No more graft and greed and inequity. No more. Because this kingdom is typified by justice. Each man and woman rendered rightly what is their due, even in this life. And righteousness, God's standards, high, holy standards, being applied to everything that's being done under the face of the sun. His reign, His kingdom is typified by justice and righteousness. Friends, if you've ever been cheated, if you've ever been done wrong, this should be good news to you. That His is a kingdom of justice and righteousness. All will be made right. All will be made well in the kingdom of our king. And peace. This is another thing that typifies his kingdom. And I think in terms of what we see, what we're so accustomed to, what we just assume always has been and forever will be. And the scriptures tell us, no, a day is coming because a kingdom is coming. Through the the advent of a king, first and second, where wars between nations, blood shed on the street, quarrels in our homes, no more because of the coming of this king and his inauguration, his bringing of shalom, that beautiful, if you will only know one Hebrew word, know that one. Shalom. You know what it means? Peace just barely touches it. Because we think of peace as like absence of conflict. Oh my gosh, that is so such a short-sighted, truncated definition of shalom. It means flourishing. It means the way things ought to be, the way things were meant to be, the way things were designed to be. Harkening back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, and will be revelation. Over all the earth, over all the earth. So you see, this kingdom is one typified by justice and righteousness and peace. Which takes me to the third thing. How long will it last? Right? If, does it have, is there a term? Is there, will it last only as long as a, a mortal man will live? No, this kingdom is marked by stability. Unlike every other kingdom that comes to an end either with the natural death of a leader or a military coup or a term limit or an election or some such thing as that, this king and his kingdom is eternal. It is everlasting. 
No more of the, the turnstiles that we are accustomed. What does it say here? This kingdom is established, will be upheld, and will last forevermore. How long will it last? For eternity. How long will it go? How far, though, will it spread, right? So is it just for a little area? So now we're talking forever, but is it just for a a confined space? And Isaiah tells us, no. There's There's a stability and a universality to this kingdom that is typified by justice and righteousness and shalom. So it's forever and everywhere. What does he say? I mean, we... Okay, so the, the land of, of Israel, at its height, north and south borders, Dan to Beersheba, Dan to Beersheba. You see that again and again and again. You know how far apart that is? Roughly 150 miles. Now that's pretty good when you've got no land. But how long does it take to drive that? My Subaru can do that on a half tank of gas. That is nothing. That is a foretaste of the universal reign and rule of this king. A cosmic, global rule and reign. Keep your thumb here in in Isaiah. Let's go to Zechariah. I know you had your family devotions in Zechariah this past week. I I know some of you told me about it. But but Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. Okay, So Malachi, great book, not going there. Malachi is the last, but we're going one to the left, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, excuse me, yeah, chapter 9, just want to read one verse. Zechariah 9, verse 10. There's a whole big flow, big context here. I just want you to hear the second half of this verse. Zechariah 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off sounds familiar already to some things we've heard from Isaiah. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's the reign and rule of this king. Or if you want to go back to Isaiah 9, first part, of the increase of his government and then of peace, there will be no end. It's the horizon. That's how far it goes. Keep walking. The sky. Keep going. That's the rain. That's the rule. That's how this joy can be so certain. That's how this hope can be so solid. Now think with me. When you know the outcome of the future... What impact does that have in your present? So, when you know how things will end, right? When you know how things will end, how does that affect just kind of where you are, where you're sitting, where you're living, where you're going, and how you're sitting and going? I mean, just think with me of like a, a movie that you've seen time and time again. But it's, it's a film, and you know the story left, you know, from front to back and back to forward, and, and, and you know and love these characters, but the story just has this way of pulling you in so that every time you watch it, 
you just kind of feel what the characters, the, the panic and the fear and the anxiety and worry and, and everything that those characters are feeling. So, George Bailey. It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart. Okay? Black and white or colorized, it's the same thing. All right? So, George Bailey, Mr. Potter, finally has the guy where he wants him. It looks like the old building and loan is going to come down and take George with it. And it looks like there's really no hope, especially because you've got Clarence as your angel. There's no hope for poor George. Now, I'm stretching this a little bit, I'll acknowledge. But if you're really pulled into this story, you might really be kind of sweating it for George. Really concerned. Because it's going to take a lot to pull this out of the fire. Until you keep going, spoiler, until you keep going at the film and you remember and you see the people of Bedford Falls rising up and coming to his, his rescue. But if, you know, when you remember that, you know how the last ten minutes of the movie are, it helps you with the, whatever, the first hour and a half or so that leads up to that. Okay, so now back back to... Us, not watching movies. How does knowing your future impact your present? Think with me of the causes some of us are committed to. Good causes. Concern for the environment. Standing up for animal rights. Fighting human trafficking. Justice, prison reform. I could go on and on and on. Those are good causes and things to put the shoulder into. Okay? Don't mishear me. Those are things, frankly, that when you turn the screws and when you dig down and when you look at their roots, have their roots in a biblical world and life view. You can know that those things are worth putting the shoulder into because those things, you think you're concerned about them? Your creator is far more concerned about those things than you ever will be. But those, so those are good causes, but they're hard causes. Wouldn't be a cause if it wasn't hard. So you're going to, if you're putting your shoulder into it, feel some pushback and frustration and a feeling like, is this even worth it? Because you know the future is breaking into the present and you know what's coming, it can help you know that indeed there is nothing in vain, no effort towards things like that that is futile. It can sustain you. Sustain you in your causes. But I would push even further. Knowing the, how the awaits in the future impacts our present, and not just our causes, but our struggles. Physical struggles. Relational struggles, spiritual struggles, emotional struggles, all of them, and all of their interplay. All things are going to be made new. All of them. You know what that means to the degree we're able to take that in and embrace it and breathe it and know it? It helps us hold on. It helps us hold on, even when we don't see anything happening right in the middle of it, of, of now. 
we know what then is. And it helps us hold on. Because of this sure and certain hope, the reality of the kingdom, Christmas is about the coming of this king. That is cause to celebrate. Let me push forward. Talk about the king himself now. Because we have what makes this joy certain and this news so good is not just the kingdom of the king, but the king of the kingdom. Verse 6. Who is he? What are we told? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is good news. Let's look again at who is this? Not just what is this that's coming, but who is this that has come and is coming? So he's described as, in four ways, wonderful counselor. I just want to go through them one at a time. So counselor, now please understand, this is not your life coach. This is not an advisor. This word counselor implies insight. It implies planning and purposes. And he is described as wonderful. That word could also be translated as miraculous. This is one who has and comes with a divine wisdom that far supersedes all of ours. A divine purpose and plan this wonderful counselor comes with. So divine wisdom, but not just that. Divine power. So the wisdom of God and the power of God. He's described as mighty God. Mighty that is used to describe the strength of a warrior protector. One with a sword who stands between all that would harm and his people. Mighty one. Mighty God. That is a title given to God himself. This king, described already as wonderful counselor, divine in his wisdom, is also now being described as divine in his power because yet he, yes, he was born, but he was also given. He has come. How many of you described your children as having just come? No. He comes because he comes from somewhere else to this place, to this earth. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Father. Now that confuses us sometimes when we hear that. Please don't understand. Please don't misunderstand. That is not a reference to the first person of the Trinity. In the context of Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah's day. This is a reference to how kings would refer to themselves as the father of their people. Okay? A benevolent protector. That's the, that's the idea there, when, when fatherhood is being spoken of here. And he is an everlasting, okay, divine, benevolent protector, everlasting father. Meaning, he has no successor. There is no plan of succession here because there's no need for one because no one's going to come after him. I already talked about this in, regard, in relation to the, the kingdom. This king is an everlasting father, this benevolent protection that he brings. He is the prince of peace. Prince, implying, of course, that he is a ruler with authority. 
and a realm and a reign over not just a nation and a people, but all nations and all peoples. And he is the prince, the ruler of peace, whose decrees, whose declarations bring in what? Shalom. And not just in a subjective sense to your heart, though it is that, to the degree that you will live and submit to his rule and his kingdom. Not just the heart, but again, shalom over all the face of this earth. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The king of verse 6 ushers in the kingdom of verse 7. And this is not hyperbole. This is coming and has come. Has come and is coming. This is prophecy and it is true. And you can bank your life on it. This is about great David's greater son. One coming through the line, the loins of David to point and prepare the way for this king. Now these are strong statements. Just those four, to say nothing of what's been said about his kingdom. These are strong statements being made about him, and if you read the Gospels, really you come to understand that Jesus actually makes them about himself as well. And that, that the church from the beginning was saying stuff like this. These are strong statements. I fear that some of us, you know, this may be familiar. I mean, I read this, and for some of you, there's a tune going. Handel's Messiah. And that's fine. But don't lose sight of the truth because of the tune. This is profound in its implications. This is doctrinal. High doctrine. Now, doctrine gets a bad name because of the way it's, it's, it's abused and sometimes used like a two-by-four upside people's heads. But folks, we are all doctrinal. Every man, woman, and child on the face of this earth has a doctrine. You know what a doctrine is? A doctrine is simply this. It is the basis off of which you live. It's the foundations that you adhere to and will assert in the course of interactions with others. It's the assumptions that you bring to the table. That's your doctrine. Everyone has a doctrine. Everyone is doctrinal. The question is not if you have a doctrine. The question is what? Let me read to you this illustration uh, from a sermon preached some years ago by Tim Keller. Tim Keller is really helpful when it comes to pressing in on things like this, issues like this, and so I want to just let him speak here, if you will. Mr. A is a Christian. His friend, Mr. B, is not. Mr. A one day sits down with Mr. B and says, I wish you could believe Jesus is Savior and Lord. Let me try to convince you. Mr. B says, nobody can know anything definite about God. And secondly, you should not try to persuade other people to see things your way. That's not right. When Mr. B says, you can't know anything definite about God, what is that? That is a faith position. That's not scientific. That's not empirical. It's a belief. And secondly, when he says you mustn't try to convince other people to take on spiritual reality... Excuse me, you, you mustn't try to convince other people your take on spiritual reality is the right one. 
he at that moment is trying to say to Mr. A, you ought to see it my way. In other words, he's saying, I have a relativistic take on spiritual reality, and you ought to take it. He's doing the very thing he's forbidding as he is forbidding it. Mr. A and Mr. B are both being doctrinal. They both have non-empirical faith positions. They've both bet their lives on it. Mr. B has bet his eternal destiny on the idea that nobody can know anything definite about God. And like Mr. A, they're both contending for it. Here's the difference. Mr. A is being openly doctrinal. He's being frank about his doctrine. Mr. B is not. Mr. B is in denial. Friends, please understand, we all have our doctrine. We are all doctrinal. It is not a matter of if but what. Now, that's not a call to be doctrinaire. That is to say rude and obnoxious and uh, exclusive and you know, dismissive of people that you disagree with. I'm not talking about that. That's completely different. Though some doctrines will take you in that direction. Just talking about the reality that we are all doctrinal. Now here's my question. I actually have two. First, what is your doctrine? What is your basis, your fundamental, the assumptions that you bring to the table, the non-negotiables you operate off of? That's my first question. My second one is this. What impact does your doctrine have on your life? Doctrine matters. What impact does your doctrine have upon your life? If you were to ask the people who know you well, would they say that over time, your doctrine has proven to make you more and more a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Would they? Submitting yourself to this king and his kingdom and his rule will make you that way. Oh, please, not all at once. Hardly. Slowly, but surely. So again I ask, what is your doctrine and what impact is that having upon your life? Christmas is about the coming of a king and it is great cause great cause indeed for us to celebrate now I'm going to end with this uh, some of you may know that a gentleman by the name of R.C. Sproul died this past week uh, Dr. Sproul among many things was the founder of Ligonier Ministries uh, he is a, was a pastor and theologian a seminary professor uh, a prolific author and speaker. I think rightly so. He has been described recently as the greatest and most influential proponent of the recovery of Reformed theology in the last century. That's probably not far from the truth. And in fact, it's probably dead on. And I will speak for myself and a lot of other men in our denomination. 
deeply impacted by the life and ministry of that man. Now, connected to R.C. Sproul and the celebration of Christmas, I'm going to read to you something he wrote in an article of Table Talk in December of 1993. And the quote is in your quotes and notes. It's the third one. Listen to what Dr. Sproul said. Every generation has its abundance of Scrooges. The church is full of them. We hear endless complaints of commercialism. We are constantly told to put Christ back into Christmas. We hear that the tradition of Santa Claus is a sacrilege. We listen to those acquainted with history murmur that Christmas isn't biblical. The church invented Christmas to compete with the ancient Roman festival honoring the bull god Mithras, the naysayers complain. Christmas, a mere capitulation to paganism. And so, we rain on Jesus' parade and assume an Olympian detachment from the joyous holiday. All this carping is a modern dose of Scroogeism, our own sanctimonious profanation of the holy. When God touches earth, the place is holy. When God appears in history, the time is holy. There was never a more holy place in the city of Bethlehem where the word became flesh. There was never a more holy time than Christmas morning when Emmanuel was born. Christmas is a holiday. It is the holiest of holy days. We must heed the warning of Jacob Marley. Don't be a Scrooge at Christmas. This quote raises a question in my mind. How is it that a man so steeped in the Bible, so serious in his stances, so strong in his convictions, such a stalwart, a defender for the faith, could be such a celebrant of Christmas? Well, the answer is not too hard to figure out. It has to do with the faith he was defending. It has to do with the gospel that he was proclaiming. It has to do with the Bible that he was studying. It has to do with the Savior that he praised and worshipped. To the degree we're hearing that, that Isaiah 6 and 7 is landing on us, if I can put it that way, a message of the good news of the king and the kingdom. There will be no room, room, no room for Scroogeism in us or among us. No Bahambug. I'll praise Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, it is an astonishing thing to consider that the God of the universe is a promise-making, promise-keeping God making and keeping promises to such as us when we have no claims, no rights before you. You bend down from heaven to help us, to love us with your wisdom and power and grace. As with the people of old, we need a king. We need the guidance and the governance and the protection and the provision and everything else, it is, comes out, it is reflected in so many ways. In all of our panic and all of our fear and all of our disjointedness and disappointment and the ways in which anger gets spun up within us towards you, towards ourselves and the people around us, we need you. Yours is a term without limits. Yours is a reign without end. Yours is a reach without barriers. And we pray that you would reach us. And you would assert your rule in us and through us. Send us forth 
this day with this good news just overwhelming and overflowing our hearts. News of the kingdom and a king. Pray in your name.